Hi, I'm Allie. Before we start, I'd like to introduce to you my next guest podcast called Hot Coffee, Cold Beer. In today's episode of Employed, you'll hear a small glimpse of what it's like to work in the sports industry. But Hot Coffee, Cold Beer takes a deeper look into the many professions that exist in sports and how those individuals got to where they are today. Here's a sneak peek. Welcome to Hot Coffee, Cold Beer. I'm your host, Brock Hendricks, with the LA Lakers, Clippers, and Kings. On this podcast, we'll sit down and share a hot coffee or a cold beer with those who have made a name for themselves working inside the highly competitive sports industry. Thank you so much, Brock, for joining me this afternoon. And you are a premium sales manager for the LA Lakers, Clippers, and the Kings. And you are also a podcast host. So I, let's I talk am. about that. This is so enjoyable. I really appreciate you having me because this is a lot of the, like what we listen to on your show is what we hope our show comes across as. So I just, I really love that there's two podcast hosts aimed at career growth that can like sit down and do this. This is, I don't know, maybe I spend too much time in sales rooms where everybody's so competitive. Like I like this world of collaboration where we're doing the same things but like we can both succeed. So I, this is awesome. I really appreciate you having me. I'm excited to learn more about your role because I know very little and I'm a big sports fan. My whole family is, and I like to know a little bit of what's going on behind the scenes. So can you just kind of describe your role a little bit and and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a premium sales manager for three teams that play at the Staples Center now. So premium means if you ever look up and you see like the box suites, or club seats, or like the really nice seating at sporting events. That's what we call in the industry premium. So I manage and sell with a team at Staples Center that negotiates for the three teams that play at, at Staples Center. And then the WNBA team, the LA Sparks, are on a year-by-year contract with our building. So sometimes there's four teams. But so that that's my role. It, it's a lot of the contract negotiation. It's a glorified sales job is what it is, but you get to do it for three teams is pretty amazing. And then I also have a podcast called Hot Coffee, Cold Beer, where we kind of peel back the layers of the sports industry. And we talk to people who do this and other roles in sports. And, you know, you get to learn a lot about what happens outside of the court, the ice, the, the fields, the pitches. So it's, it's awesome. It's, it's, uh, it's a really rewarding career. But I do think that the one thing sports people will tell you about working in the industry is that everybody thinks the job is super easy. And people think that it's really turnkey. When it's actually not, it's actually really, really challenging for just different reasons. I'm so excited to kind of dive in a little bit about what you do, but just listening to your podcast, I had no idea how many different roles there were to make it all come together, like a show, like a performance, you know, there's there's more than just the team and the coaches that we see. Isn't it funny to think about, like, when you watch sports, everything looks effortless and everything looks flawless, and that's by design. It's because there's hundreds of people behind the scenes pressing play, pressing record, making sure the cameras are set up correctly, making sure the doors to the stadium open on time. Like there are so many jobs inside the sports industry that are just so fascinating. And hopefully you listen to our show and you learn about those things and you dig into it. Because even I learned things about the sports industry. You know, there's there's a million ways to make it in the world. And apparently there's also that many to make it in sports. So tell me a little bit about how you got into your position or what sparked that interest. Did you always know this is something you wanted to do or what led you here? Yeah, I grew up a Lakers fan and I grew up in Los Angeles, California, a little suburb called Glendale. And I went to, you know, a school where, you know, it was really competitive basketball team. So the whole goal really growing up was like to make it 
in sports, right? And then I grew up to be five foot nine and white. And I realized that like, that's not happening for me. You're not going to be a pro NBA player. So sports was always a passion. And I never really knew how uh, it was going to come together. It makes sense in hindsight that, you know, it was a sports career that, that ended up happening for me, but it wasn't the plan. I, I actually went to school for broadcasting and public relations. I went to Southern Utah University and a really small, like tiny college that was literally the size of my high school my college was. Uh, my graduating class in my high school was the entire size of the college. It was, it was crazy. So I left Southern Utah University. I went and got a sales job and I was selling printers. I was walking in door to door to businesses, selling them these printers. And it was this really luxurious job where I got a hundred thousand dollars a year for selling printers right out of college. And it was really as simple as, Hey, here are your numbers. As long as you do this every year, we'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars. No questions asked. And what I learned about it was that I liked sales. I was good at it, but I hated printers. So I ended up leaving the printer sales job probably about three, four months in. And I took a job in minor league baseball, selling tickets. And much like you, Allie, I had no idea that was a job. I just thought you went to minor league baseball games for fun. I never thought and never put two and two together that it's somebody's career to put you in that seat. And it opened up this whole new world for me. So I started working in minor league baseball really just because it was a passion. And I figured I would figure life out, you know, and see what came of it. Well, it turns out the, the team I worked for, I started doing really well. And I broke some like rookie organization sales record. And it turned out the team that owned the minor league team I worked for was the Utah Jazz. So the Utah Jazz sort of just promoted me and plucked me from within. And then you started to learn about what this industry really is. And then you learned that like, this is a career people have, and this is you know, a way to make a living. So I went from the Salt Lake Bees, which was the minor league team I worked for, to the Utah Jazz. I worked the, for both teams for about a year. And then I started to piece back together, like what I wanted out of my life. What that was, was getting back to Los Angeles. So I actually left the Jazz for the Dodgers. I worked for the Dodgers for one year. And then I have been with Staples Center and the three teams ever since. So that's kind of my path. But how it happened is 100% on accident. I love that story. And just kind of the way you can work up in that industry really quickly. Yeah, it's very competitive. It spits you out or, you know, rises you up. And, you know, I'm sure we'll dig into a lot of these, yeah. these things. But yeah, it's, it's a very rewarding industry. Tell me a little bit about the education that you needed or the training or the skills that was required for you to, to get to your position. It's really funny you ask that because there was no training, really. This was a job I didn't even really know existed until I threw an application out there with a, with a minor league baseball team. However, now where the industry is heading is there are sports management programs. You can actually get your degree in this in some places in the country now. So uh, we joke about this in the industry that, you know, this was something we kind of lucked into or happened by. But now you can go to University of Massachusetts Amherst and get a ticket sales degree and get out of college and come do this. So it's very interesting the way that it has come across. Nowadays, you, you don't need those things, but they help. What I would say is you probably just need good work ethic and you need a good attitude about sales, which is not something a lot of people want to do or it's That's not hard. a fun job. Yeah, sales sucks. Like we'll, we'll be honest and salespeople will be the first people to tell you that it's rough and it's, it's, it hurts more than it's joyful. But that is probably the only training that you need. I think the best sports salespeople are really good storytellers. So I don't know how you train for that before you go in, but the people that can make convincing pitches and have some kind of business to business skills are the people that make the most successful sports salespeople. 
what are the demographics of your field or your workplace? Who are the people that you're surrounded by? This is something I'm super passionate about. I don't have the numbers in front of me. And these are things that we dive into on our show too, that, you know, we'd like to see more hard numbers of, but I, you know, I'd be lying to you if I said that this was an equal workplace. There are just not as many opportunities for women in the workplace. The minority versus a white person ratio in sports, I don't have the numbers, but I know it's not good. And I don't know how much of it is systemic. I don't know how much of it is just that the sports industry hasn't paid attention. Mm -hmm. But these are things that we do need to improve really in the country, but definitely in sports. So while I don't have hard numbers and science, I can't tell you how many times I've looked around a room and seen only straight white males. Hmm. And I just think diversity is important for everything you do. Definitely. Whether you're making decisions about the country, whether you're making a podcast, wouldn't you rather have three different people with three different backgrounds, three different inputs than people with the same exact background? Like when do you right. grow in that case? So I would like to see more women in high positions in sports. I would like to see more minorities hired in entry-level roles. The breakdown really is when you start in sports, you take a job, what's usually called inside sales, which is like an entry-level sales position. Those are usually young kids. Those are right out of college or you know, you haven't turned 24, 25 yet. Usually, every so often, you will see somebody in their 30s who just wants to make a career change and you know they start from the bottom and that's kind of what you have to do. Once you make it out of inside sales, there's kind of this fork in the road moment where you go, you know, what do I want to want to do? And these are usually the the places people go. After you go out of inside sales where you're just trying to make a name for yourself and you're trying to stay around, you're usually taking like a one-year contract to make an impression in the organization and then there's no guarantee that you make it past that. So that's where you see a lot of people flail out of the sports industry. After you do that, you usually go into one of two things. You either go into season ticket sales or you go into group sales. The only difference is usually a group is me trying to convince your company to bring all of your employees out to one event versus season tickets is one ticket or two tickets to every game at the team you work for. After you've done well there, you're probably at, a, at about my age now. You're at like the 27 to 28 ish range. And some people make that a career. Some people will sell season tickets or group tickets for the rest of their life. That, that definitely happens in the industry. After that, you start to see another fork in the road kind of present itself of what do you want to do next? And the next levels are usually one of three things. One is I want to be a manager. I want to lead people. Like I want to teach people how to sell season tickets and be the leader of that group. The second option is partnerships. So if you ever see that insert tire company here is the official sponsor of the LA Rams. Somebody sells that sponsorship. Somebody goes to that tire company and offers money and a value proposition to have that kind of advertisement. And then the third one, which is where I am, is called premium, which is again, just the very, we'll mm -hmm. call it the fancy stuff, the very high level seating. You know, at Staples Center, we have million dollar suites that we have to sell. Um, we have club seats that include the Lakers, Clippers, and Kings. So it's a next level type of sale. Those people are usually doing that role until they're about maybe let's call it early to mid thirties. And then by then you have figured out your role of, you know, what's, what's next. And the, the challenge I think age wise is that there are a lot of young accomplishers in our industry, at least at Staples Center, we have three directors that are under the age of 33. So if you look at that from my perspective as a 28-year-old trying to make it up in the industry and grow, you go, well, 33 is young for a director. 
they could be there for a while. And so you have to move around and you have to do these other things. And you maybe don't get to live in the city you want to live in anymore, work for the team you want to work for to get those kind of corporate ladder Mm -hmm. steps in. So those are the challenges as far as age goes. I will say sports is really good about having a good blend of, of age. There are team presidents and vice presidents that are in their 60s and some that are in their 40s. So that definitely ranges. What is a typical range of salary or commissions, I guess in your case, uh, that someone can typically expect to make with your numbers of years in the field? I mean, obviously it'll depend on the team and you can touch on that. It definitely depends on the team. And the reason that is, is because of ownership. You know, if you have a cash poor owner, they probably don't pay their employees as well. If you have a really high backing employer, you probably make a a decent amount of money. So that depends. Also, every team has a different level of profitability, just like every league has a different level of profitability. So for example, Major League Soccer profit-wise just doesn't bring in the same amount of money as Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. So that will depend. But every sport is kind of known for its niche and, you know, its pay raises and and who takes care of who. Traditionally, when you start going back to that inside sales, when you're in your first days in sports, you're probably going to make very little money. Nothing probably above $50,000 unless you're doing really exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. Like my first job in in minor league baseball, I had an $18,000 year base salary. And then a bracket style of commission that basically said you make 3% commission on everything you sell until you settle $100,000 worth of stuff. Then everything above that is another percentage. That's typically how sales teams will do it. Or they will sell individual products and go, this is how much you make off this. So if you sell a group ticket, you get 5% of it. If you sell a season ticket, you get 7%. So teams will typically do things like that. So that's how you make most of your money is, you know, they put you in a position where you need to sell your way out of minimum wage, which is unfortunate to begin with, but that's also kind of how you pay your dues and how you prove your worth. Once you make it out of that position, you know, it totally depends. Typically premium and, and the corporate partnership people make decent money. And when I say decent, it's, you know, almost a hundred thousand to over a hundred thousand. And there's two reasons why that happens. One, because commission on a million dollar suite, if you're only getting 3% is, is a bigger number. So you are getting higher volume things, you know, a partnership for the LA Rams might start at something around a million dollars per year. So there are higher volume that you're bringing in. So even if the commission percentage is low, you're still getting a lot more. The other reason that partnerships and premium make a little bit more money is because of something called the collective bargaining agreement. So every league enters what's called a CBA that says, hard structurally, this is exactly how money works. So in the NFL and the NBA, for example, every jersey sold is distributed to all 30 teams. So for example, when you buy a LeBron jersey, let's call it for $90, that $90 is going to get split 30 ways. So the Charlotte Hornets actually make the same exact amount of money as the Utah Jazz as the LA Lakers do when you buy a LeBron James jersey. So that's part of the CBA. But what the CBA says about premium and partnerships is that each team gets to keep their own. So when I sell a sweet contract for the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Kings, that goes 100% back into the pocket of the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Kings. Whereas if I sold, let's call it jerseys, pretend that was a job where you sold jerseys for a living, 
the owner doesn't actually get that much of the money from merchandise and ticket sales and things like that. So that's why they make a little bit more money and they're a little bit better taken care of is because the owner has a significantly higher vested interest right. in how well you do because how well you do turns into how well they do. Oh, that's so interesting. I had no idea. Are there any benefits to working in your specific field that you might not find in another industry? For example, free tickets or meeting athletes and celebrities? In LA, there's definitely the the latter. There's definitely the celebrities and athletes that are just constantly, you know, in somewhat closer proximity than you would have in like St. Louis or Salt Lake City, for example. But we have all the, the same traditional benefits. Like we will have some PTO, we have 401ks. In Major League Baseball, until recently, there was even a pension. So you got a pension if you worked in minor league or major league baseball based on how much time you spent in those organizations. So in that, obviously this depends place to place as, as well, but free tickets is definitely the biggest one. The, every team will do it differently. For example, at the, at the Jazz, we got season tickets. So you could, you got a, you got two or four tickets to every single game. And then based on how long you worked there, you could kind of get better locations and you kind of worked your way up to having better seats. So there is that, that is a benefit, you know, we're out there selling season tickets to businesses and saying why they need these. Meanwhile, we're getting them for free. That's a huge benefit. And there are people that would do that for free. There was certainly a point in my career where I would have just worked for season tickets. Absolutely. The other things that come with it too is, you know, this is one more particular to me is the benefit of the emotional vulnerability that is fulfilled when you are part of a team that wins a championship is unreal. So I'm lucky enough that we just saw the Lakers win the whole damn thing. And I got to be a part of that there. That is priceless. And that is my why that's why I'm in sports because you can't get that anywhere else. You can't get that selling printers is to say, I'm a world champion. I'm an NBA champion. I'm me five foot nine Brock Hendricks, which blows my mind. There are some amazing athletes in the world. Carl Malone is one of the best NBA players of all time. One of the greatest scorers ever. He played for the Utah jazz. He never won a championship ring. Allen Iverson is one of the most popular athletes ever. He never won a championship, never got a ring. Yet here is Brock, the whitest kid you will ever meet. There is those kind of residual benefits that nowhere in the world can provide for you that only sports can. Just feeling that, I'm sure feeling that sense of family and unity among not just the team players and the coaches, but everyone in that stadium with with that logo and that badge just feeling like you're one together that have all done it. That is, that is something that I've never gotten used to in this, this field alley is the fact that like, I can go back at the end of the year and go, I made the Lakers X amount of millions of dollars. That's crazy to me. Like that, that is a pinch me moment every single year that you go a fan. I'm a fan of this team. I want them to do well. Right. Well, here I am almost like as a career putting my money where my mouth is going like, all right, well then I have to make them millions of dollars a year. I'm not being a good fan. One of the other benefits too, that I think about, like that comes top of mind when you talk about sports is just the idea of like giving people free tickets is one of my favorite things in the world. Like when we go travel places, this is personal to me. My dad and I are trying to do this thing where we hit every baseball and football stadium together. We want to hit every single one. And it's amazing that when you go to these places, like if I go to St. Louis, I can call somebody at the St. Louis Cardinals and go, Hey, I'm Brock. I work for the Lakers, Clippers, and the Kings. You know, if you're ever in LA, I will happily leave you tickets and they will usually treat you pretty well and leave you tickets or, you know, at least give you a tour of the stadium or you at least now have an inside contact. And those are the kind of things that lead to friendships for life 
on top of all these residual benefits. And the other thing is just gear. Like I can't tell you how much Dodger gear my dad got from my one year there. He'll never have to buy a Dodger shirt ever again. That's a pretty good gig. What are your typical work hours? Are you generally working a regular eight to five Monday through Friday or does yours kind of go around the the game schedule? It is 100% around the game schedule. Your week to week is almost never the same. Even in the off season, really, there are just weeks that are busier than, than others. And working at Staples Center is such a high volume product. Luckily, we don't really have an off season, but typically how it would work, you know, at least for us, you're working 60, 70 hour weeks sometimes, and they're very all over the place. They're sporadic around the game schedules. So your, your schedule is all over the place. A nine to five really doesn't exist in, in sports. The best league at work-life balance is major league soccer because they have less games. And a lot of the times they're on like one weekday and one weekend game. So you're not really compromising a whole lot. However, what you're doing is you're still getting into the stadium at 8 a.m., you're probably not leaving until 7 p.m., 8 p.m., depending on you know how much effort you're putting in. And then you're coming back on Saturday for a full eight-hour shift. So hours are all over the place. It's really hard to have a consistent personal life. You have to be very grounded in who you are and your hobbies and structured in that way. But yeah, hours are absolutely absurd. It's, it's probably the worst part of the sports industry, to be honest. It's got to be such a fun office space. You know? The way that I would describe it is they're enjoyable hours. They're long. There's a lot of weeks where you are leaving the stadium on like a Wednesday night and you've already hit 40 hours for the week and you're exhausted. And then you got to be back up on the road at 7 a.m. the next day. But what else would you rather be doing? I'm doing I'm doing 60 hours a week for the Lakers. Like pinch me. Yeah, I do a thousand hours a week for the Lakers. Can you walk me through an average day at your job from the time that you arrive to the time you leave? And can you also kind of touch on what a regular conversation looks like between you and a client? Yeah, an average day for us, all of our meetings are, are business to business. So it's very rare that we are out there trying to sell like Ali a suite. We're out there trying to sell Ali's company a suite. And how we do that is we go face to face in their office. We set a meeting to go sit down with them build some rapport and really spend like 30 minutes of really what you're doing is you're pitching yourself and your value and then translating that to here's the value my product has. And what you're also doing is trying to learn exactly what that business really does, how they operate. So I'm looking for three things. I'm looking for, can I help you with employee retention? Can I help you find a season ticket that, you know, when you give your employee who's from Dallas two tickets to Clippers versus Mavericks, how much does that really save your company? You know, in sports, at least at our company, if we lost our junior level employee, it would cost us about $90,000 to replace them. So you start to think about what kind of things could you do that don't cost $90,000 that could even keep that employee in the building just another year so that you don't have to pay that money and that opportunity cost. So we, that's a very convincing pitch that you're going out and telling businesses. The other thing I look for is like, who are their clients? If they're an advertising agency, it's likely that their entire book of business is just keeping current clients. Well, you know what can help you do that? Spending time with them at Staples Center. And then the third thing that we look for is a sales team. You know, if you have a team of 10 salespeople, this could be a really powerful thing for them to build relationships, close deals, or maybe you just want to give them tickets to load them up and keep them motivated and happy. And the Lakers, Clippers, and Kings are a really good way to do that. So you're going in, running a business meeting trying to learn information based on 
how they operate, what they really do, what are their budgets, you know, does this kind of product even make sense for them? We try to do about seven business meetings out of the office a week. This is obviously during non-COVID times. And we probably walk away from four or five of those meetings going, we don't really have anything for you. This doesn't fit. So it's a lot of no's, but that's what you have to do to kind of get the job. So an average day looks like you're trying to get a couple of those. You want to get out of the office, get into somebody else's office and pitch yourself and your product and your worth. And then the rest of the time is sending emails, trying to make phone calls, trying to set up those meetings. So we will try to send about 100 emails a day out to businesses in Los Angeles saying, hey, I'm Brock Hendricks. I really believe in what we do. We help companies do these three things that we just mentioned, the employees, the clients, and the salespeople. I would love to sit down and see if I could do that for you. And if you get 100 people a, a day, you get 500 people a week, and five of them say yes, that's a win. And only in sales is five out of 500 a win. But that's what our daily process really, really looks like. And then if there's a game, you're usually hosting a client. You're usually trying to pitch somebody at the game. That's typically what we will use as like a last step. So you've gone to meet with them in their office. You've pitched them a product. You're crossing the T's, dotting the I's, and maybe you need somebody at the company to kind of give it the, the once over. Or you're finally getting the CEO of that company you've been pitching to the stadium. You kind of use sports tickets to, to get them there. It's a good leverage tool. And then you host them at the game, you show them a good time and really paint the picture of what their experience for their clients, their employees, or their sales team would look like. And sometimes that means seven to seven days. Some days I'm in the office at 8 a.m. and don't leave till midnight. Everything is dependent on how much you have to do. And, and really, the busier you are as a salesperson, the better you're doing. A regular interaction between me and the client, it's hard to say because they're all so different. Um, and everyone in Los Angeles is so different. That's also the problem, is attorneys talk completely differently than people who manage you know, uh, talent managers or somebody who sells marijuana acts completely differently than somebody who sells alcohol. So they're all very, very different. But I would say that it all starts with a bonding point. Everything in life, you know, if you think about it. So when you reach out to me and say, hey, do you want to do this show? We have a bonding point of we had a mutual friend. That's just an interpersonal relationship. So you have to think about how can I do that with another human that I don't know? I don't know the CEO of this company. How do I make some kind of bonding point? You figure it out. Maybe you went to similar schools. Maybe you grew up in the same part of town. Maybe you know something, or maybe you like the same sports team. So I would say, well, no two conversations are alike. The one thing that is in common with every single meeting you have and every single person you try to talk to in this business is you're trying to find some kind of bonding point. If I find out that the CEO of this company I'm trying to sell is a Seattle Mariners fan. Well, every time I talk to him, I'm going to bring up something Seattle Mariners. Sure. Or if I find out that their kid goes to Penn State, you better believe we're going to talk about Penn State every single time on, on the first call. So that's what you're looking for to, to build some rapport, you know, make them like you. What is maybe the weirdest or funniest or most unexpected situation that you've encountered? I have thought about this a lot, and there are a couple really embarrassing stories I could tell here. Um, some of them I tell on our podcast, so go ahead and listen and, and hunt for them. I would say one really embarrassing story that I had was how I accidentally got noticed by the NBA commissioner. So the head of the entire NBA 
there's a lot of really strict rules in the NBA about what you can and can't say as a team employee. And that includes what's called tampering, where you can't influence anybody's decision. You can't influence a player's decision to come join your team. I work for one of the biggest brands in sports, the LA Lakers and the Staples Center. So there's some obviously hypersensitivity around what we say. So I was on a sales team of seven people. And what I had learned is that about a week earlier, people started posting this article about that the Lakers in free agency were the odds on favorite, according to Vegas odds, to sign LeBron James the next offseason. So I had seen everybody in my office do this and post this article. And I realized I was the only one who didn't. So what I did was I copied the same article, I put it on LinkedIn, and I think the caption was something like, can you imagine what it would be like to see LeBron James in a Lakers uniform and close business in front of him? Call me if you have any questions or call me to set up a meeting, I think is what I said. It was on LinkedIn for uh, three hours and it got 14,000 views It got circled around the NBA league office and the commissioner of the NBA had to issue a statement to the Lakers, to my employer to say, Hey, um, this could be considering tampering and we, we need to take this down. So something that simple got, got noticed and picked up. Like that's how hypersensitive things are in Staples center. Two sentences that I didn't think twice about ended up in front of the NBA's commissioner's office. So what happens is our chief revenue officer walks in and he goes, which one of you is Brock Hendricks? Which is a great way to start, right? Like, I'm so glad I made a name for myself. I've been on the job for maybe six months, hadn't even made a sale yet. And all of a sudden he's walking in going, who is Brock Hendricks? And I like, I very shyly raised my hand. I'm like, hi, hi, uh, I'm Brock Hendricks. I'm sure it wasn't that dramatic, but that's how it felt. I felt like a hamster, you know, crawling backwards, trying to escape it in an awkward situation. And he said, well, congratulations, Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner knows your name. And I didn't say anything. I had nothing to say there. My, my first instinct was to say something sarcastic because that's kind of human I am, but I realized that wasn't a good situation. So all we did was I went and deleted the post. And what we learned was that I could get 14,000 views on LinkedIn and all my other coworkers would only get a couple hundred. It's a blessing and a curse. Adam Silver knows your name. That's a good day. Adam Silver, if you're listening, I am so sorry. Okay, what about the worst day at your job? What was a big challenge that you've had to overcome? I don't know that there's any one day that looks at it. But what I would say about the sports industry is, while it's great to say you're part of the Lakers organization, and while you're getting all these benefits that are associated with your sports fandom that you can't get anywhere else, I think most of the sports industry feels like there's an 80-20 rule, where 80% of the time, your job is just hell. You're doing things that you'd never want to do in a million years, but you'll do them because you work for insert team here. And that's a really cool thing to be able to do and say. And then 20% of the time you were just on cloud nine. So when, you know, LeBron James gets hurt, for example, that happened his first year with the Lakers. And all of a sudden, you know, he is a hurt groin. He's going to miss a lot of time. And the team performance is going to go down big time. That's a bad day. But it's all the residual effects afterwards. It's the fact that the next day when you try and set up a meeting with the business, they know these things. They know that LeBron James isn't playing and and then the team performance is going to be hurting. And so it's the constant effect of that that contributes to the 80%. But then, Ali, when, when you are part of a team that wins the NBA finals and all these amazing things that come with it, or you make a new friend at work that you know is going to be your lifelong friend, like there are people I'm in the trenches with every day that when they do well, 
we all do well and we mm-hmm. all celebrate when the guy next to me closes an $800,000 suite. That's a win for all of us. And it's moments like that that contribute to the 20% of the time where you're just on cloud nine, nothing in the world can hurt you. It's the happiest you'll ever be. And you take that deal because the 20% of the time is so good, but it's 80% of the time I think is really rough. If you could be doing anything else for a living, what would you be doing? It sounds like you're kind of working a dream job. It does, it does feel like I'm working a dream job. Like I understand that I'm really lucky that this is a position that people would answer that question with. So I feel really lucky there. I really like the podcast we're doing. I think we're doing really good work and I think we're doing important work. We're shedding light on the industry and anybody who maybe likes or doesn't like sports can tune in and learn a couple things about their career. Just like this show where, you know, I think there's skills that I learned from listening to an episode about somebody who works doing music therapy that I can take into my role. So I think a podcast host would, would be that. And, you know, I, I'm lucky I get to do that, but you know, I gotta be honest, there are days like on the really hard days on the 80% days, I dream about faking my own death and running away to like Rhode Island or Colorado and just go into like some tiny town, get a couple Bernese mountain dogs, take the life insurance policy that I took out on myself and just go open a bar. Let's see. I'm trying to think of everything else. I've, I've asked all my questions, but do you think that there's additional information that, that someone should know if they want to pursue a career? I think if you want to work in sports, the two things you should do is to start to figure out one is why. Like why sports of all things? Because I hope what I've done is given a glimpse of what it's like in the industry, but I hope I've also set some pretty realistic expectations that, you know, you're going to be doing things you don't want to do a lot of the times. You know, a lot of what it means to work for the LA Dodgers is to be taking calls where people want refunds and you can't give them refunds, or they're upset that Clayton Kershaw got hurt, something you have no control over, but yet you have to treat this person like a good human or else you're not doing your job right, you know, and it's people's money's on the line and people love the team as much as you do. Sometimes they love it more than you do. So you have to treat them accordingly. So I think if you, you have to look very deeply inside yourself and go, why this job? Because again, there's a million ways to make it in America. So why does it have to be this? And if you have a really good reason why it's sports over everything, then yeah, then, then you should start to, to do these things. And then the second thing you should do is network. And networking is the most vague term used, I think, in a lot of industries and could mean so many different things. But I think networking is, is as simple as this. I look at you, Ellie, and like when you go, hey, do you want to do this podcast? We've met probably under five times ever. And I wouldn't even say we have a close relationship. But when I thought of your name, when you reached out, there was a good feeling associated with that where I went, oh, yes, I can vouch that like Ali is a good person or that I would collaborate with. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just as simple as that. How many people can you get in front of that if you walked away and somebody went, hey, do you know Allie Nielsen? They'd go, yeah, I do. And there's a positive thing to be said about them. So go out and network, make an impression on someone and who knows where the world takes you or who's going to take a chance on you, but just get in front of people and be a good person to good people and see what happens. So much of planning your life is a joke. You just have to let life kind of take you where it's going to take you. You know, you can never plan it out like this. I think you are a prime example of that. Just looking at your track. Oh yeah. If, if you would have said, okay, you're going to take a printer sales job. You're going to quit that job. And then one day you're going to work for the Lakers. I would have said like, get out of here. No, yeah. no way. 
it takes so many things happening on accident and so many blessings in disguise to one day look back. You'll always be able to connect the dots looking backwards. Thank you to Brock for donating his time to the show. If you or someone you know is interested in becoming a future guest, please email employedpodcast at gmail.com. Follow Hot Coffee Cold Beer Podcast on Instagram and catch new episodes Mondays on every major streaming platform. Thanks for listening.